Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here by your grace. I pray that you use me for your honor and for your glory. Speak to your sheep this evening through me. Holy Spirit, may I rely solely on you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when I was younger, growing up in church, I don't remember much. I do not remember much. However, I do remember the preacher. Now, I don't remember what the preacher necessarily preached, but what I do remember is the way he preached. So it was very loud. Um, He was very flamboyant. I can remember the crowd, or, yeah, the crowd, because I I don't even know if that was even a congregation. There's a difference between a crowd and a congregation. But I remember the crowd clapping their heads off, the whistles. Um, I remember the running. I remember a lot of things. But what I remember very, very, very much is at the end of every sermon, the preacher would give what is called, and you might have heard this before, an altar call. Anyone ever heard of an altar call before? Yeah, altar call. So an altar call is basically when the preacher calls whomever wants to come to the altar or the front of the stage. Okay, And he would call them to either get hands laid on them uh, for a renewal of their faith uh, to Jesus or to receive Jesus as your personal savior. That's, and that's the gist of it. And I can remember many people responding to the call. If you want to give your life to Jesus, then come to the altar, right? If you grew up in churches where they did altar calls, you remember that as well. Many people would come to the altar and, and, I can remember when the people would be at the altar. I can remember the preacher would would lead the people in a prayer and the people would recite that prayer. And the prayer would go something like this. "Uh, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe that you are the son of God, that you died paying the price for sins and rose again. I ask you to come to my life. I receive you as my Lord and savior. Now, If you guys can guess where that sinner's prayer is from, then you are listening to some bad teaching. Because that's actually from Joel Osteen's website. And there's more theology, there's probably more theology in that one little prayer, so-called sinner's prayer, than Joel Osteen has ever preached in his life. But that that is a quintessential sinner's prayer. And the second the prayer was done... I can remember everyone in the room clapping their hands off, screaming their lungs out, the band playing, the choir singing, and the preacher would say, congratulations, you are now converted to Christianity. You have now been converted. You have now converted your life to Jesus Christ. Anybody remember that? It was a big, big deal, big celebration. And then when the weeks would go by, the pastor would give another altar call. And I can remember the same people who went to the altar call two weeks ago to give their life to Jesus are going back up to renew their life with Jesus. And it would always be very odd to me because first they're converted and then they come back to the altar to be reconverted. And I would say to myself, how is it that you make a choice to give your life to Jesus that only in a few weeks take your life back from Jesus, and then only in another few weeks, give your life back to Jesus. 
So it's like a give and take relationship. Friends, the, the topic of conversion, what it means to truly be converted, has had no shortage of ink spilled nor wasted. Back in the 19th century, Charles Finney developed what was known as, and what I grew up with, the altar call, as a device to get decisions in his meetings. So in order to get decisions for his meetings, he created what was called the altar call. Ian Murray said in his book, Revivals and Revivalism, Finney believed that all that was needed for conversion was a resolution signified by standing, kneeling, or coming forward, and because the Holy Spirit always acts when the sinner acts. So when you make the first step, then the Holy Spirit makes the next two steps, or the next three steps, which is completely heretical. Finney believed that conversions can only be obtained by the use of means to get people to walk the aisle, and, and he seemed to get some pretty good results out of this. Fast forward to the Billy Graham era. The same thing was happening. In Finney's case, many people were coming to the altar, and, and Graham was getting the same results as Finney. However, the people who were coming to the altar, who were supposedly being converted, soon fell away from that decision that they made that there was only a small percentage of people who actually converted to following Jesus Christ. And I think many people believe that a genuine converted person is someone who just simply prays the prayer, who signs the card, who stands up when, when someone is um, asking if they want to give their life to Jesus, someone who quietly accepts Jesus as their personal Savior. Many people think that that's what conversion is. That's what a genuine converted person does. That's, that's what they do. I think many people believe that a genuine converted person is someone who simply joins a church and that's it. So friends, we want to answer, what does it mean to be a genuine convert? What does it mean to be a genuine convert? And that's our topic for this evening. Uh, genuine, genuine, genuine convert. And I want to propose that in order to be a healthy church member, you must be a genuine convert. In order to be a, a healthy church member, you must be a genuine convert. You must be genuinely converted. And to help us answer if we ourselves are genuinely converted people. Mind you, guys, just because you're sitting here, just because you love theology, just because you know, you know a lot of things, doesn't mean you're converted. The demons know a lot of theology. They're not converted. So we want to... We test ourselves this evening. And the way we're going to do that is by three tests, the belief test, the obedience test, and the love test. So the, the belief test, the obedience test, and the love test. And these are very, very simple tests that I hope that we will, will use to examine our own Christian lives. So let's first look at the belief test, okay? Ask yourselves... And I might get a quick amen, yes, all of that. But ask yourselves, do I truly trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation? Okay. I mean, like, do you honestly really believe that Jesus Christ is enough? That all you need is Jesus and no one else? 
First John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In order to be genuinely converted, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. He is that skull-crushing seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who would come and remove the sins of his people and who will rise for their justification. You have to believe that. If you don't believe that, then we need to talk about that. You have to believe that Jesus and him alone is the only means of reconciliation to God. That Jesus is the only means of reconciliation to God. As you know that we are that from birth before Christ saved us, that we were in separation from God. And the only way that we can be reconciled to God is by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way. We have to believe that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus' perfect life, that his perfect sacrifice, that his perfect obedience, that his perfect atoning work on the cross was enough to satisfy the wrath of God. You have to honestly, with your heart, believe that. Because honestly, friends, your own good works and your own good deeds cannot get you to heaven. Your own good works and good deeds aren't enough to give you peace with God. If anything, if anything, um, you'll allow God to be more angry with you. Because you're saying that you can do it all yourselves. That, that was the problem with the Jews. They thought that they can do it all themselves, that they can gain a, a perfect standing before a holy God by obeying the law, by, by doing all the commands on their own initiative. <clears throat> All your efforts, all of your trophies of good works can only send you to hell. And you're only storing up more wrath upon yourselves. Guys, and this is, this is Christianity 101, okay? This is Christianity 101. If you don't know this, then you need to go back to, to, to relearning what the gospel is. If you can't explain this, then, then quite frankly, I'm scared of, of your uh, conversion, because if you can't explain why you were saved, how you were saved, who you are before Christ, who you are now in Christ, then there's a problem there. Then you don't really understand the magnitude of your sin and, and the, worth, worth, the, the worthiness of Christ and what he has done. Okay? I know many, many things in our lives consume us, TV shows, movies, um, various doctrines, but this right here is what you need to focus on if you don't know this. I know that many of us used to think, me uh, especially, we used to think that before Christ saved us, that we weren't that bad of a person. How many of you guys, show of hands, believe that? Before Christ saved you, thank you, Lucy, you're the only one in this room that believed, oh, Doreen, oh, so, oh okay. Okay, everybody on this side, except I feel like thought that they were great people and you can get to heaven. That is awesome. Well, guys, um, you weren't a great person, okay? Um, you can be a great moralist. You can do good for the community, yet you can still go to hell. That's the reality of it. That's the gospel. That is at least the bad news of the gospel. 
The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Isaiah, it says that all of your good deeds are as filthy rags. I love to tell that to unbelievers. When I tell them, do you think you can get to heaven? And then I give them Isaiah and I tell them that all your good deeds are as filthy rags. And honestly, we have, do we have any kids in here? Do you have any kids in here besides Patrick? Okay. Well, if you look up what filthy rags means, then it'll give you a very, very uh, a vivid picture of, of, of what your good deeds are in front of a holy God. It's very disgusting. It's very nasty. Friends, there is nothing that we can do to earn our way to God. Christ and him alone is the only way of salvation. We can't save ourselves, as Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? We can't. We cannot change who we are. We don't wake up one morning and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved. I want to follow Jesus Christ. It just doesn't happen that way. That something supernatural has to happen. Friends, we can't change ourselves. Only Christ can make us righteous before a holy God. We can't come to God on our own initiative. And that's what I thought when I was, a, when I was younger. And I, maybe many of you guys thought that as well, that, man, when I turn 30, when I turn 40, when I turn 50, 60, 70, when, I'm, when I think that I'm about to die, then that's when I'm going to start going to church. That's when I'll start being a Christian. That's when I'll start following Christ. Friends, it doesn't work that way because it's not that easy. It is not that easy to give up everything that the world throws at you, everything that your flesh desires. Give that all up to buy that pearl that's hidden in the field and to follow Christ and say that Christ is all that I need. He's, he's everything. He's my su- supreme pleasure and passion and all of that. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills. So we can't come to God on our own initiative. Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's at a time when these, when these unbelievers are asking themselves, why can't we come to God? And Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father, uh, comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you must trust in Christ and him alone for your salvation. But I must add that not only must you trust in Christ for your salvation, you must trust in Christ as your Savior, but you must also trust in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 10, as your Lord. It's very easy to trust in Christ as your Savior. It's very easy to say that, yes, Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, and then go on the rest of your life doing whatever you please. You have to believe that Jesus is Lord. The common error in conversion is people only confess Jesus to be their savior of sins. However, that confession of Jesus as savior must be followed up with confession of as Jesus uh, as your Lord. And to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess Jesus to be rule, to have rule over your life. It is to, it is to give him supreme authority. It is saying that you are now under his kingship is to live by his standards and to obey his law. And friends, genuinely converted people have confessed both. I pray that you have confessed both, that Jesus is not only your Savior, but he is your Lord. So why is this point so vital? Because the church, I believe, is to be made up of visible saints who have trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation. 
that yes, I know that there, there might, there is, that we can't avoid the mixed bag in the local church. We understand that there are some people who are going to be unbelievers. But what we are striving to do is create a church that is made up of believers who love Jesus, who lean on Jesus, who confess Jesus as their king and master. And I pray that you confess that. So to be a healthy church member, you must believe in Jesus for your salvation. But also you must believe that Jesus is Lord. Very, very simple. Very simple. Let's look at the, 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 the second test, and that is the obedience test. So genuinely converted people trust in Christ for their salvation, and they believe that he is Lord. Now we have the obedience test. In 1 John 1, 6-7, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we are in relationship with God, but we walk in the darkness, then we lie to ourselves, to other people, to God, and we do not practice the truth. Genuine converted people no longer walk in darkness. Okay? That's the obedience test. Genuinely converted people no longer walk in darkness. Why? Because genuinely converted people no longer live in darkness. You don't walk in darkness because you no longer live in darkness. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the dominion, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So what happens is when Christ saves you, what he does is he transfers you from darkness and places you in light. You no longer, you no longer um, don't know where you are going. Okay? You now have future. You now have a future. You now have a hope. You are no longer walking this, this world and living in this world with the lights off. God has turned the lights on. He has placed you into his kingdom. Mind you, a kingdom that has no end. But what does it mean to walk in darkness? It means that we simply are still consistently sinning with no signs of repentance. That's what it means to walk in darkness. To, to still continue to sin with no signs of repentance. Proverbs 26.11 says, like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats a folly. Just let that soak in. The next time you sin, the Bible says it's like a dog going back to its throw up. That's what it's like. And to, to, um, to give you more encouragement, you're a fool in doing that. Friends, if you say you're a Christian, but you go back to your old life of sinning, then man, you're going back to the very thing that Christ has saved you from. And everything that Christ has saved you from, Proverbs calls throw up, vomit. It's disgusting. It's nasty. <clears throat> when Christ saves someone, he doesn't save you and he doesn't leave you there. 
He's, when Christ saves you, I think a lot of people think that when he saves you, then, then Christ is like, sort of like that Willy Wonka golden ticket, right? That he gets you in a chocolate factory, heaven. And, but you can do whatever you want. But as long as you have that golden ticket, as long as you have Christ, you can go on and keep sinning and do whatever you want. That's not how salvation works. That's not how God saves people. When Christ saves you, he changes your whole entire being. Everything changes. Christ may save you where you're at. He may come to you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you where you're at. Okay? He changes you. He, day by day, by the working of his Holy Spirit, is setting you apart from all that you used to be, from everything that your flesh desires. Everything in your life changes, from your worldview to the way you talk, And the way you think, the things that you say, how you interact with people, he changes all of that. That's why it's so interesting to me when I see churches who build their foundation on things of the world. And I don't want to name names, but I'm just going to name names. Like Victory Outreach. When their whole thing is going and reaching out to gang members. And if you listen to their sermon, they speak to the congregation as if they're gang members. Your language needs to change. Or like set free. Used to be set free. Their whole, their whole, their whole image was being uh, bikers for Christ. I'm not saying motorcycling is bad and riding a motorcycle is bad. But friends, you are no longer, you're not a biker for Christ. Okay? You're not a gangster for Christ. You're not, you're not a holy roller. <laughs> you're not those things. You are a new creation in Christ. All things have been passed away. <clears throat> Christ, by his spirit, day by day, is conforming you more and more into his holy and pure image. Man, pastor is going to get a kick when he hears that. I might get in trouble too. But, but he is more and more conforming you to the image of himself to make you pure, to make you holy. Again, Colossians 2.1.22 says, He is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, what, what Christ is currently doing in each and, each and every one of you, if you have repented of your sins, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation and believe that he is Lord, what he is doing is he is currently right now purifying you and he's sanctifying you he's setting his bride apart just like when a wedding is happening what does the wife usually wear white right the wife wears white what does white symbolize it symbolizes purity and holiness and that wife is being presented to the groom as holy as pure as unblemished That's exactly what Christ is doing to his bride. And he's presenting you day by day, renewing your mind, renewing all of your passions, all of your desires, everything that you wanted to be. Christ is now renewing all of those things. Generally converted people are those who are striving for holiness and not to obtain any type of special, uh, special grace from God. That's not why we try to live in holiness and try to obey God. That's, we don't do for those things, but we understand that holiness is God's nature. 
holy is who God is. And genuinely converted people want to be like their God. We're not trying to earn our salvation. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to be more and more like God. Like Christ. I remember when I was younger, I wanted to be like Mike so bad. Michael Jordan. And then I, and then I wanted to be like Kobe Bryant. And Alan Iverson. I did everything. I dressed like them, talked like them. I'm a Christian now. I want, to, I want to be like Jesus. And I hope that you want to be like Jesus. Strive for that. To love like Jesus. To think like Jesus. Even though we can't. But we can be a, a slight shadow of that. The famous Puritan John Owen said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Ask yourselves, does my life show a pattern of habitual, unrepentant sin? Does my life show a pattern of me constantly, every day, intentionally going out of my way to sin? And then when you do sin, are you repenting of that sin and striving to walk in the life? Because if you are not striving to mortify the flesh then Owen says the flesh will eventually kill you. It will happen. Now, I'm not saying that genuine, genuinely converted people, will they're never going to fall. I fall daily. You fall all the time. But when I, what I am saying is that when we do fall, we are striving in repentance. We are striving... And wanting to please God. And we are not trying to go back to the very thing that we repented of. We are making a 180 turn. And we are pressing forward. What I'm saying is we don't intentionally go out of our way to sin. And when you do sin, I pray that your repentance is real. I, I, I pray that your repentance is real. It's, it's not no, God, thank you, for, thank you, forgive me for my sin. And then you go on the rest of your day. But there has to be some type of heartbreaking, you know. There has to be some type of aching in your soul. Because you have offended a holy God. And a sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. But thank God for his grace and his patience and his mercy that he will hear you. When you do ask for forgiveness and because his nature is unchanging, he cannot lie to himself, but he will forgive you and he will remain faithful. Even when we day by day are faithless. Friends, there is no overcast in your Christian life. Okay. I love that weather when it's an overcast outside, but that's not what the Christian life is. You are either walking in darkness or you're walking in light. Simple as that. So ask yourselves, am I still living for this world? Am I still serving this world? Or am I serving Christ? You can only go so long fooling everyone, guys. It will eventually catch up to you. But that is the beauty of the local church. Because the beauty of the local church is you now surround yourself with people who will not let you deceive yourself, who will come alongside of you and who will help you in your sin. 
You have to surround yourself with people with, who love you and who care for you. Quite, sim- quite frankly, friends, sometimes the, the people who you think love you don't really love you. Like Mama Joe, who you think loves you and gives you all the great advice, who's not, a, who's not saved. She can tell you great moral things. But man, some, it's different when a Christian helps you. You know, because you know it's coming from, from a different worldview. It's coming from a God worldview. So, people who have genuinely converted to Christianity, who have genuinely given their lives to Christ, are those who no longer walk in darkness, but strive to walk in the light. And I pray that you strive daily. And also pray that I strive daily because I can fall as well. We all can fall. <clears throat> now let's talk, to, let's talk about the third test, which is the final test, and that is the love test. The love test. 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Genuinely converted people love other Christians. Genuinely converted people love other Christians. At our last Young and Reformed meeting, our brother Arturo, um, right there in the Dragon Ball t-shirt, spoke about Christian unity which, man, I was so blessed by. We all were very, very blessed by. And what he said is, Christians are to have a greater unity amongst each other and a greater love amongst each other because our love is founded upon truth, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. You know, when pastor said a long time ago, when he says, when he sees another Filipino, he gets in his Filipino mode. He starts to talk like a Filipino, you know, so we're talking about Manny Pacquiao and the Philippines and Dobo and all that stuff. There's a, there's a special connection between that Filipino and this Filipino. You know what I mean? Just like with you guys, when you see another Mexican, you know, you start speaking in Spanish, you know, stuff like that. But friends, how much more is our unity and connection with people who profess the same profession that you profess, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior? There, there's, there's a special bond there. There's a special unity there. <clears throat> Before Christ saved us, our love for people was ultimately based on subjectivism. Well, at least mine was. You know, I love you because you're funny. I love you because you're smart. I love you because uh, you're into basketball like I am. Or you're into uh, the things that I'm in. Or I love you because you do something for me. I mean, like, I know when, when I am uh, working, when the customers tip me, when they do something for me, oh, man, I'll go, I'll go above and beyond. Whatever you want me to do. You want me to clean that? I'll clean that. Oh, you want me to get that? I'll, I'll do that for you for free. So my love for that person is based off of what they have done for me. Or love, or I love people because we have something in common. And ultimately, the way we used to love before Christ saved us was very shallow, was very weak. 
But why was it so shallow and weak? Because it was scarred by sin. It wasn't pure. It wasn't holy. It wasn't coming from a right place. So you might think that you loved people, and you might have. But please note that your love was scarred and tainted by your sin. That is why the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, right? So what God does is he indwells you with the Holy Spirit. And what he does with your love is he expands it. He heightens it. He renews the way you love because now it's a pure love. It's, not, it's no longer scarred by sin and tainted by sin. You're no longer doing things. You're no longer loving people for selfish reasons. <clears throat> God takes that love that you already possess and he expands and heightens it in order that you may love others from a pure heart. And, and now you have a reason to love others, an objective reason to love others. The reason not being, oh, because you did something for me. But the reason is because someone has done something for me. And you might have thought before you came to Christ that that is a good, it's a good moralist thing to do, to love people. However, now as Christians, you love others. But why do we love others? My narrow road people, why do we love others? Because Christ has loved us first, right? We love because Christ has loved us. John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love nor does not know God, because God is love, and the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him in this love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Simple as that. Because God has loved us, we love our brothers and sisters. Because we love the very things that God loves. Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this point is very important for understanding conversion because many of us think that Christianity is a solo act. A lot of us think that Christianity is a solo act. But once we are saved, we simply go off and we do our own thing. We do whatever we want to do. We follow Christ, but we do it alone. That's not the way God intended it to be. When God saves someone, he doesn't leave you as an orphan. He's a good parent. He doesn't leave you as a single child. But he surrounds you. He adopts you into a family. A family of brothers and sisters. I mean, if you can, for just one moment, look around. These are your brothers and sisters. 
These are your brothers and sisters. When you commit yourself to God, you're, 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 you're saying that I commit myself to God, but you're also saying that I commit myself to other people. I commit myself to love other people. And friends, a large majority of the love passages that we read in the Bible are supposed to be read in the context of the local church. And the local church is to be the expression of God's love for sinners. So when unbelievers see the way that we love each other, the way we talk to one another, that is to force them to draw near to us in order that we may share the gospel with them. The way that, you know, the way that we love each other, unbelievers are supposed to say, oh man, there's something going on there. And they ask you, what's, what's going on? Why do you love this person that much? Why do you talk to this person that much? And friends, let me just tell you another thing. Athe- a lot of atheists, the reason why they're converted is not because of some elaborate and some great and eloquent arguments for Christianity, but they see the love that Christians have amongst each other. And they say, hmm, I want what they have. I want what they have. Because what we have is something that the world can't offer you. You can't buy this in the world. <clears throat> Love is, is supposed to mark us out and is to set us apart from the world. That is, that's what sets us apart from the world, guys. The love that we have for one another. So friends, love for one another helps us in our Christian walk. How does love for one another help us in our Christian walk? It helps us with our sin. And it helps us not deceive ourselves. Right? You know, I, I know that Arturo loves me. So when Arturo is telling me and pointing out my sin, I'm not looking at him and I'm saying, you're being judgmental. But what I'm saying is, that brother loves me and he cares for me. And he's telling me these things because he has my best interest in heart. And he cares about my walk and my sanctification process. So he has to point out my sins in order for me to put the blinder, put, put, the, put the, the head beams on in my life and, and examine my life to see where I am failing. When we love each other, we create relationships like that, that help us in our, in our walk when we sin. Because, and also, it helps us not deceive ourselves. It helps us grow in wisdom and understanding of God's word. When we love, each other, when we love one another, it helps us grow in Christ. It helps us understand God's word better. You know, when Mark has a problem with, with understanding a passage in the Bible, he can come to me or he can come to a Patrick. He'd come to somebody because he's built a, he's built a relationship with that person. He trusts that person. And that foundation, that trust is built on love. And also love helps us display the gospel toward unbelievers. Friends, following Jesus in one sense is personal, but it can never finally be private. Never. That is why the local church is such a grand gift from God. Because you surround yourself with brothers and sisters who love and care for you. Who have all come under one building to display the glory of God's holy and precious name. Mark Dever said this, too many people play at being disciples of Jesus as if it's sort of a private hobby. But the fact that it's private shows that it's not real. You can't be a private disciple. How can you even, how can you even be a private disciple? <laughs> to, be a, to even disciple someone, you've got to go out of your way and talk to someone. 
And people who have been genuinely converted display the love, display love for other Christians. Now, and you might say, and, and, and we're almost done, you might say, I agree with you. I agree with everything that you're saying when it, concerning love. But man, Christians are some weird people. And that's, 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 you might laugh, but that's for real. I've had people tell me that. Like, man, I love the church, but man, there's some weirdos there. But quite honestly, friends, you're weird as well. I mean, RBC is a weird bunch. It's a weird mixed fruit bag of, of some weird apples and oranges and, and bananas. But it just so happened in God's providence, he chooses to save weird people. That's just what it is. Don't let the fact that other people don't, have the, don't, don't share the same interest with you stop you from talking to them. Stop you from loving them. Because the foundation of our love and our relationship is Christ Amen. and him alone. So friends, how can we show love for one another? What are some practical ways we can accomplish this? Look for ways to start including more of your fellow members into the regular rhythm of your life. Okay? Look for ways to start including your fellow members, your brothers and sisters in Christ, into the regular rhythm of your life. Offer to take someone out to eat after church or during the week. Open your home up for dinner, breakfast, game night, whatever. Find ways to involve yourself in the life of the church and in other people's lives. Okay? Open your door and leave it wide open. Whoever wants to come, come. Go out of your way to, to, to talk to people, to create relationships with others. Young people, talk to some of these older people. And they can, they can show you and they can teach you what it means to really walk with the Lord. Not for one year, for two years, but for ten years. For 20 years. Yes, some of them, they might not have great theology, but man, they can teach you some things on how to stand on God's word. And also, you older people, don't think that younger people can't teach you anything. But they can teach you a lot. A whole lot. So genuinely converted people are those who have placed their faith in Christ, have trusted in him for their salvation, believe that he is Lord. No, they are no longer people who walk in darkness, but they live and strive in the light. And also they love their fellow brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful time. I pray that that was useful. I pray that that made sense in light of my jokes and in light of what I was saying. I pray that it hit home for someone, Lord. And I pray that you and you alone were glorified in this message. Now, Lord, let us examine our lives, examine ourselves, test ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. Allow us, Lord, to create relationships with one another. And those people will help us in our walk. And we know that they will not judge us when they point out our sin, but, Lord, they are pointing out our sin because they love us. And we love them for doing so. We will not be offended, but we will take what they have said as wisdom. Now, Lord, be with your people as they go. May your grace be with us all. May your peace be with us all. In Christ's name.
We pray. Amen.